0: Welcome to another session with the Market Dominance Guys, a program about the innovators, idealists, and entrepreneurs who thrive and die in the high-stakes world of building a startup company. We explore the cookbooks, guidebooks, and magic beans needed to grow your business. So let's get going.
1: Connect and Sell. Connect and Sell allows your sales reps to talk to more decision makers in 90 minutes than they would in a week or more of conventional dialing. Your reps can finally be 100% focused on selling, since all of their CRM data entry and follow-up scheduling is fully automated within Connect & Sell's powerful platform. Your team's effectiveness will skyrocket by using Connect & Sell's teleprompter capability, as they'll know exactly what to say during critical conversations. Visit ConnectAndSell.com.
2: states, lots of them, 50 states. Plus you have red states and blue states, uh, states of consciousness, physical states, liquid, gas. How about the state of markets or being market dominant or simply being an also ran in your market? The fact is, is there's really only two states you can reside in as a company. You're either dominating one market or more, or you're dominating zero. And if you're dominating zero markets, you will go out of business in time, unless you turn into a company that is dominating at least one market. Because market dominance is security, it's collateral, safety, shelter, asylum, parlay, But most importantly, it's freedom. Because the only two reasons a company dominating a market can ever go out of business is either financial mismanagement, or if the market is just too small. So how do you map your journey to market dominance? What's changed over the past few years that makes it easier for some and more difficult for others to even get out of the gates? In this chat, I asked Chris for his insights into the real stakes of entering this octagon of business without a true dominating intent. This is the Market Dominance Guys, and today's episode entitled The Two-State Solution in Market Dominance, Dollars or Donuts?
0: The talk that I give starts with corporate strategy and the challenges of corporate strategy, and it goes all the way down to the psychological nuances of the script. In one case, in the dinner case, I'll call it, I leave the details a little fuzzy. So I get to the sort of the fact that there are these psychological imperatives and the language is important, but it's not a workshop. The idea is to get people discussing this controversial question, which is, is it possible that the path to dominance, an old path to dominance has gotten more difficult because of some secular changes in the world, which is primarily a concentration of wealth in the hands of a smaller number of people which has driven the growth of private equity and private equity has driven the competition of money with corporates where corporates have to compete against money that has an easier job what does the money have to do all the money has to do is make an investment they have to find a, they have to find an asset they want to invest in and they see them as assets not as companies Mm-hmm. And then they put the money into that company through this complex looking process. But it's the same for all parties who might ever want to buy that company. No different. They have more flexibility. They can take positions from whole ownership down to some, some fraction, which a corporate can't do. Corporate needs control. So they have a wider variety of targets they can go after. They have no requirement to integrate, none whatsoever. They can buy the company and just let it run. Or they can buy it and put in new management. Or they can buy it and have a thesis about operations. Or they can buy it and combine it with another company. They can do anything that they want, right? I'm a corporate. When I buy a company, what can I do? I can either let it run independently and decide whether, I'm gonna, whether the, the law says I have to consolidate the books or not. And then I can say, well, I've added it to my portfolio and I'm going to seek synergies later, right? the SSL approach. Or I'm going to integrate that company into, my, into the acquiring company, which is known to fail 90% of the time. So as a corporate, I have to pay up now, I have to pay premium prices for an asset that may or may not be the right asset because I can only learn so much about it before acquiring. And after acquiring it, I have to do more work with a higher failure rate. The guy I'm competing with just does his due diligence, strokes a check and says, yeah, we'll flip it later. Right? So that path to strategy, that mountain that sits in front of me has gotten steeper and steeper and bigger and bigger. And corporate strategy, which is essentially which markets am I going to go in, right? Mm -hmm. I have product strategy too. But even there, I tend to to execute as a big corporate, I execute through acquisition. Mm -hmm. And product strategy, I still can kind of do that way. You know, the venture capitalists take care of that problem for me. They build the research and development labs off there in Silicon Valley and Silicon Slopes and Austin and Boston and all those places. And all these people come to work for them thinking that they're starting these businesses. But all they're really doing is just working for these laboratories that are working on categories of problems. And these are quite happy because they get free labor, you know, and they have a salvage operation running to strip the IP out of these things if the business didn't work, which they don't really care about. And the business that is that business is a demo of value for a future acquirer. And every once in a while you do kind of demonstration, make one of them. go. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, that game is played. No problem. Product strategy is a big corporate. I could choose to make my own products and take them to market, but that fails almost every time. Now, You know, some people know how to do that. Half of those people are talking to you right now. So it's so uncommon that it's just not even worth considering, right? A product strategy. But your big strategy is market strategy. I need Mm -hmm. to go and take a new market. Because market domination is, by strong evidence, the only insurance against business failure. So that's actually where I start this talk, which is quite surprising to people. I say to them, the fact is, there are only two states you can be in as a company. You're either dominating one market or more, or you're dominating zero. If you're dominating zero, you will go out of business unless you turn into a company that's dominating at least one market. The only reason a company dominating a market can ever go out of business are well, two. One is financial mismanagement to the point where you're, you're, you can't even recover in a market dominance position. Usually you take on too much overhead, Right. So if your overhead is so big and you can't figure out how to get rid of it or you're too dumb to get rid of it and your market is too small, then dominating a market doesn't ensure your survival. So uh, what is defined as a market, Chris? So a market is, I use Jeffrey Moore's definition. So a market is a list or set actually, but a set is usually expressed as a list of mutually referenceable companies that is they have the mathematical property that when one of them buys a product from vendor A a specific product product you know product x from vendor A then every other participant in that market everybody else in that set becomes more likely to buy that product mm-hmm. at the same price or under the same conditions of knowledge mm-hmm. so you keep lowering the cost the internal cost your cost as a seller of taking the next unit within the market, of advancing in the market as you take units. So markets essentially are downhill, mathematically downhill operations. Once you get a boulder rolling downhill, it rolls faster and faster and picks up more boulders, right? Mm -hmm. So in a market, once you get that first customer, which is very hard to get, by definition, anybody else who's positively influenced to buy from you that particular product, by definition, they're in that market. If I will buy because you bought a little bit, you know, I'm a little more likely to buy because you bought, you and I are in the same market for that particular product. Mm-hmm. And that's it. It's just a mathematical concept. It's a set of all of those who are mutually, uh, mutually reinforcing with regard to their desire to buy. And the reason for markets being defined like this, and this is markets for yeah, usually not entirely established categories. But if I'm a company coming into a space, I'm not established. So it's I've got the same problem as though I have a new product or a new innovation. I'm new. New is bad. Nobody wants to buy new in business, right? Everybody wants to buy new as a consumer because as a consumer, I'm putting my money at risk. And if I'm uh, identity as a consumer is wrapped up around like my, my social status is wrapped up around the perception of other people that I do new things then I'm easy to sell to. This is why consumer products tend to come into the market quickly if they hit a little subset that are like, wow, that's the cool thing. And then cool tends to take them either up and big or they just eat the cool factor and that's all they get is the cool ones, right? There's no equivalent of that in business except a tiny fraction of people called technology enthusiasts that you can sell to and you can Mm -hmm. sell new stuff to them and they're very, very small and they flame out quickly. In the business world, People are afraid for their jobs. When I buy, I fear for my job. So I'm naturally much more conservative than when I'm risking my money because I'm not risking my money anymore. I'm not risking the price, right? Even if I buy a Tesla, the worst case is I'm out the price of a Tesla minus the resale value of a Tesla, right? So I take it off the lot and then I sell it the next day because I hate it because it turns out those two big screens, you know, make me have seizures while I'm driving or something and it's like well i got to get rid of this tesla well i might lose i don't know 5000 bucks it's not so bad if i buy my company a tesla so to speak and we commit to a business process in which the tesla is essential to the business process this is how we're going to get to our conferences from now on we're not going to fly we're going to drive this tesla really fast and then we discover oh darn there's speed limits we hadn't taken into account that there's speed limits it will go really fast, but we can't go that fast. And now it's too expensive to get to all the conferences we need to go to, and we're gonna go out of business. Hey, Chris, why'd you buy the damn Tesla? why didn't you stick with the airplanes? Well, they're kind of expensive and all that. And the Tesla promised to be cheaper and blah, blah, blah. It's like, oh, okay. So you failed to notice something in your analysis and we're not letting you ever buy anything again. Mm. So we're gonna take your power away, maybe take your job away. So what am I risking? Oh, let's see my reputation, my kids' college education, my retirement, my uh, respect in the community, uh, whether my wife stays with me, husband, dog, whatever, I risk everything when I make a B2B purchase. The bigger or the newer, the scarier. So what's so unique about B2B and what frankly, drives me crazy when I see these predictions that B2B will go to the way of B2C and it'll all just be easy buying online. It has to do with how much information the buyer has. It has nothing to do with how much information the buyer has. In fact, the 180 degree opposite, the more information the buyer has accessible to them in B2B, the less inclined they are to buy because the information is all vendor information or vendor influenced information. You can't tell It's the fake news problem. It's all fake. To some degree, every single thing anybody says about any commercially available B2B product is shaded in the direction of trying to influence the buyer to make a decision. Mm -hmm. The buyer knows that. And the buyer knows that decision could cost them their career. The B2B buyer knows that. Only the B2B has no no
2: problem. That's oh, right, well. but the B2B buyer has this. Their consumer, yeah. when they get up in the morning, they drive to work in their car. They close their car door. They walk with their briefcase up to security, and as soon as they scan their badge, and they go into their cubicle, it's almost as if the air is piped in differently, or the the ceiling tiles or the magnetic forces change them to these risk averse pieces of of mankind versus they'd be so risky to buy something on their own money but they come into this environment and uh, they have much more of a sensitivity to marketing information uh, product information the phone ringing and the sales of a stranger on the other end of the line so it's the same person on the weekend exactly. <laughs> between monday to friday
0: exactly. but the, but the stakes are higher is that what i hear you say exactly the stakes are so high they're so high that only somebody who is so reckless that nobody would ever let them buy anything for a company just goes out and goes, oh, I'll just get one of these. They'll just get whatever it is. Even something as simple as a conference. Look at the decision to buy something as simple as, I think we'll go to this conference, not even as a sponsor. Very simple. Risk isn't that high. You don't like the conference. You don't go again. And yet a committee will form around it. People's opinions will be asked, right? It's not this idea that, that is, In fact, here's the contradiction, okay, the big contradiction. So we're told as sellers two things are going on. One is our B2B buyers are becoming consumer-like, and the other is the buying committee is getting bigger. Mm-hmm. Now, think about that physically. The consumer privately sits there in front of their computer or on their smartphone and looks at some information and gets influenced by influencers, you know, whoever it is, Kim Kardashian or whatever, and they go as a consumer, oh, I think I want this, click, click, click. And they have like buy with one click on Amazon and all that kind of stuff, right? The B2B buyer, we're told, does the same thing more and more each day. And yet somehow they're doing it by committee. The committee is getting bigger. So what does the committee all sit around at that person's desktop and stare at this stuff and go, no click here, no click there? It's physically impossible to reconcile the notion of the B2B buyer becoming more like the B2C buyer and the committee growing ever larger and more influential. They're opposite mm-hmm. ideas, and yet we're fed both of them by the, the pundits, the experts mm-hmm. in, in B2B sales, with the exception of what I'll call like the four horsemen of outbound, right? Of Jeb Blunt, Anthony Iannarino, Mike Weinberg, Mark Hunter, people around that set go, no, 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 you don't get it. That, none of that stuff's happening. What's happening is the scared buyer is still the scared buyer and must talk to a seller that they learn to trust. And that seller is going to tell them what to buy. And they're going to earn that trust by being trustable at the beginning and then trustworthy over time because they actually have information asymmetry. They know better than the buyer and so they will be the trusted advisor. Think of the contradiction between the B2B buyer being B2C, and the need for the trusted advisor, and the growth of the committee, all of these are contradictory ideas. And nobody exposes the contradiction. Oh, no, no, they're all happening. Why? Because as an expert, I can make more money selling you sales techniques to you if you believe all this crap, right? But what's really happening is nothing has changed except this internet Thing, has provided so much additional information in the form of scary noise. The buyer has become more conservative rather than less. And that more conservative buyer expresses themselves in the larger committee. The committee is a, a an insurance policy against the individual buyer making the decision and being held accountable. So the committee is not a corporate idea like, wow, we need to have 10 people involved in every sale. It is, wow, it's so confusing out there. Things are moving so fast. So I have velocity increasing and information flow and availability increasing. And so here I am as the buyer. What do I do for safety? There's safety in numbers. I'm not going to make this decision by myself, I'm going to make it with others. However, only one person in that committee whoever it is, who kind of is is guiding it, or is the person that everybody else is looking to, the person who would have been alone if there hadn't been the committee, that person is gonna rely completely on trusting one of the sellers more than they trust themselves. The threshold for a B2B purchase decision is not to trust one of the sellers more than you trust the other sellers. It's to trust one of the sellers more than you trust yourself. Hmm. This is the essence of the B2B equations. From a market dominance standpoint, now we go all the way back to, oh, look what happened. Private equity came in and wrecked the landscape for buying companies in order to enter markets. So now I have to enter markets by myself, which means I have to sell my way into markets. So now I'm on the outside. My buyers are these cautious creatures who, who aggregate into these committees when they're doing serious buying. So I have to somehow gain an advantage there over all my competitors in order to dominate this market. Before I could take my balance sheet and get an advantage by cleverly identifying a company that was ready to sell itself to me. That's hard now. Now I have to do something though a hundred times harder, which is I've got to get this cautious animal called the B2B buyer first identified. I have to find them. Then I've got to get their trust. And then I've got to grow their trust through a process in which new players are going to come in and that trust has got to go out into the committee somehow. And then I have to exceed a threshold I'm not aware of, which is they have to trust me more than they trust themselves. Otherwise they're going to go to the standard outcome of a B2B buy, which is no decision. 90% of all B2B purchasing processes end in no decision. The reason is none of the sellers climb the mountain high enough, the trust mountain high enough to be trusted more than the buyer trusts themselves. This is the essence of the entire market domination and therefore survival question for every B2B company. You've been listening to Market Dominance Guys Radio, sponsored by Connect & Sell, right here in the Funnel Radio channel for at-work listeners like you.
1: Today's show is also brought to you by UncommonPro.com. Selling a big idea to a skeptical customer or investor is one of the hardest jobs in business. So when it's really time to go big, you need an uncommon methodology to convince others that your ideas will truly change their world. Through a modern and innovative sales and scripting tool set, we offer a guiding hand to ambitious leaders in their quest to reach market dominance. It's time to get Uncommon with UncommonPro.com. Never miss an episode. Go to any of your favorite podcast venues and search for Market Dominance Guys or go to MarketDominanceGuys.com and subscribe.